Thank you. Once again, we uh, are privileged to speak here. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. I was in one of those half of mind things. You know, do you do a special Christmassy message because it's almost Christmas? And I thought, nah, we'll go on with the next section of... Uh, of, of the Gospel of Luke. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Chapter 9. As I've said before, and possibly you have remembered, possibly not, when the Scriptures were written, there were no headings. There was no chapters. There was no verses. And there was no punctuation. In fact, when you look at the copies of the, the old manuscripts... The, the, the New Testament is written all in capitals with no punctuation and no gaps between the words. So it's just one long, one continuous stream of letters. They run about 22 letters and then start the next line. All right? So it, it can be a little difficult to figure out where someone is up to. That's what makes it remarkable when it was, when it was said of Christ that when he was handed a book of the scroll of Isaiah, he opened it up and found the place. Now, most of us would have trouble finding a spot in the book of Isaiah with the help of the chapters and verse. But no, these, these people could open it up and find the spot they were after. Luke chapter 9 commences with the sending out of the twelve. Luke chapter 10 commences with the sending out of the 70. By the way, this is all just introduction. Luke chapter 9 commences with the sending out of the 12. Luke chapter 10 commences with the sending out of the 70. That means we went from 12 disciples to 70. Luke chapter 9 is concerned with the making of disciples and the teaching of those disciples. Luke chapter 9 has all these things that are told to us about the disciples as they grow and mature. We're going to look at the last point in Luke chapter 9 today, the lesson of priorities of disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We ask that you might open it up to our hearts and our minds. Teach us, we ask, Lord. Teach us in our hearts that they might be changed and turned towards you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are lessons in Luke chapter 9, just to run through them fairly quickly. There's the lesson of power as the disciples return rejoicing that, the, that even the demons are subject to, to the name of Christ. There's the lesson of provision in the feeding of the 5,000. There's the lesson of profession as Peter confesses that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the lesson of primacy when up in the mount, God speaks from heaven and says to these people, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. There's the lesson of powerlessness as the disciples come down and find that there is a child there which cannot be, 
be healed by the other disciples and they have to wait till Christ arrives because of their lack of faith. There's the lesson of pride as the disciples argue over who's going to be number one. Who's numero uno in the, in the city of God? And Christ has to say, you've got things backwards here. There's the lesson of pity when he says, when they won't listen, it's not a cause for anger, but a cause for sorrow. And finally, there is the lesson of priorities. Priorities. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Hey, that's nice. You know, in, in Mark, it says that this was not just any old person. This was a scribe. This was a theologian. This was one who had spent his life studying the scriptures. And incidentally, he was one of those who very often were opposing Christ. But this was a man who clearly had looked and had said, this is the Messiah. Notice he calls him Lord. He says, Lord, I'll follow you. I've recognized that you are the one. You are the hope of Israel. You are the chosen one of God. You're the Messiah, the son of David, and I will follow you anywhere. Now we would think Jesus should be going, yes, here's a man. Here's a man who's already knows his Bible. Here's a man who knows the scripture. And here's a man who has seen in me who I am and what I'm coming to do. So what is, does he saying? Come on in. You're the, just the guy we've been looking for. No, he says to him, verse 58, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has not where to lay his head. You see, there's a cost to being a disciple. There's a cost. And he says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says to him, anywhere? How about nowhere? Anywhere? How about no place? To any place I live? How about no place? This is interesting. Because the two illustrations that he uses here are foxes and birds. When, when we, in, in our Western European way of thinking, when we think of a fox, what do we think of a fox as a symbol of? What do we think of, you know, as cunning as a fox? That's not the way the Middle East looks at foxes. Foxes are not seen as a symbol of cunning in the Middle East. They are seen as a symbol of of weakness weakness you see we we contrast the fox and the donkey one very clever one very stupid when you look in scripture they contrast the fox and the lion ah the fox and the lion they say this one is very weak contrasted to this one which is very strong a fox is not a symbol of cleverness in scripture. It's a symbol of weakness. And Jesus said, even the weakest animal 
has a hole to hide in. I don't. I am less than the weakest of God's creatures here. With no place to call my own. Now the bird. It says the birds of the air have nests. Literally, that word is a perch. Have a perch. Have a place to land. Have a place to sit. And he says, I don't. I have no place of my own to rest my feet. For even, remember, when our Lord died, they had to borrow a grave to bury him. He did not even have a place to lie of his own when he was dead. Absolute homelessness. Now, how important is home? How important is home to us? You know, the back during World War II, they had some journalists go to a, a bunch of American soldiers that were preparing to embark to cross the Atlantic. And they asked them, what is the word that means the most to you right now? Now, some said duty. That's true. That's good. Some said loyalty. That's, that's good. That's true. Some said country. That's, that's good. Some said family. But the word that they said meant the most to them as they were preparing to lay their lives on the line for a cause they believed in was home. Home. Home was the thing they were thinking of. That's interesting, isn't it? How important is home to us? You know, they say home is the one place that they've got to let you in no matter what you've done. That's what home is. That's what, that's what a little boy said that home was. Home is the place that's got to let you in even no matter how naughty you've been. That's home. And Jesus was saying to this man, listen, you come and you follow me on this earth. You will have no home, not even a perch to put your feet, not even a hole to crawl into. He's saying, if you want to be a disciple, know what you are getting into. Understand what you are getting into. You know, we, we think we want to go out and recruit. It almost seems like Jesus is trying to frighten people away. Because he wants people to know what they are getting into when they become a disciple. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says... All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare, declare plainly that they seek a country. 
And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, they might have had an opportunity to a return. But now they desire a better country, that is, and heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Look, you can go through Hebrews 11, and one of the emphases is there that these people saw themselves as pilgrims, just passing through. No permanent home. If you're going to be a disciple, you will not have a permanent home on this earth. Not if you're going to be a good one. You might have a place to live. You might have a really nice place to live and you might live in it for a long time. But if you're going to be a good disciple, you're not going to have a permanent home. Because disciples, if they will be like their master will find that this place on earth is not their home. Many years ago, I took my son out camping. Now, in those days when we went out camping, uh, it wasn't civilised. You had a 35 kilo pack and everything you wanted for the next three to five days was in that pack. You didn't pack it, you didn't have it. And when we are up, one place, we, we uh, had these little two-man tents, but we were smart in one way because each of us had a two-man tent because those two-man tents are really, really small. And uh, David was there and he was hammering in the tent pegs. I said to him, Dave, don't, don't hammer him in that deep. Why? I don't want the tent to fall down. Well, that's good. But just remember, we've got to pull those tent pegs out in the morning. Brethren, we're like that. Don't put your tent pegs in too deep. We've got to pull them out in the morning. For one day we will leave this world. We will leave this place and go to our real home. And our Saviour said to this man, on this earth, you have no home. Your home is now in heaven. Verse verse 54. 59, he said to another, now this is interesting because the first man came to him and volunteered his services. The first one came and said, Lord, I'm here, I'm volunteering. This one, our saviour came to and said, I want you to follow me. And the answer he gets given is, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. You ever, you ever noticed how you can change a sentence by where you put the emphasis? Right? You know, you can change the whole meaning of a sentence by where you put the emphasis. Now, I want you to listen as I read two verses. And I'm going to just read them through. Just read them through. Then I'm going to read them through again putting some emphasis on a couple of words. You listen to the difference it makes. Verse 59, And he he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. To another also he said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at home in my house. Now, consider it like this. 
And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And to another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, which are at my home and my house. Me first. That's what they're saying. Yes, Lord, you, you've got a claim on me, but me first. Brethren, we have raised a generation of me first. You go out and you see them off. The, the, the whole call of the world today has become me first. Me, 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 me. There's a whole other sermon there if you want, but we'll, we'll, someone else can tackle that one. But just re- me first. An evil, adulterous and selfish generation calls me first to their own regret and to the fact that Christians think of that, th- begin to think that way too. Me first before God. Me first before my church. Now, these two people have come to, Christ has called them and they seem to have what you would seem are quite legitimate concerns. One says, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. What, we're to, to leave our parents unburied? Consider this, was his father dead? No, because if his father was dead, he'd already be burying him. Remember that the Jews in that time buried people within 24 hours of their death. So the father was not dead. What he was saying was, Lord, when my dad's dead, gone. When when dad's gone and, and my responsibility is over, when I don't have any call on me from my family, then I'll serve you. Jesus says, no. I've called you now. I want you to serve me now. The other says, Lord, let them bid me farewell first at my father's house. Can you imagine getting one of those great little letters they used to send out from from the government to you? You know, you've been invited to... uh, learn new skills, to travel to foreign countries, to meet interesting people and then kill them. They used to send them out back when I was about 18 or 19. Imagine getting one of those letters from the government that says, we want you in the army now. And then saying, oh, hang on a minute, Um, I've just got some other things I need to do first. You would find some very large MPs at your door with their hand on your neck saying, we said now. The world will not permit you to say, oh, when I'm ready, when I'm ready. When you get a letter from the, from the, the, the court that says, we want you in court. You have business here either as a witness or a defendant or as a juror. You can't just say, oh, no, when I'm ready, when I'm ready. They won't listen to you. But we think, seem, people seem to think they can say to God, no, when I'm ready, when I'm ready, then I'll do it. When the party's over. Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? When the party at my parents' place is over, then I'll come and serve God. 
When I'm finished having fun, then I'll come and serve God. When I'm finished having a great time, then I'll come and serve God. When I'm finished and got myself married, then I'll do it. When I'm finished and got my job ready, when I've bought my house, when, 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 and God says, no, you come now. God calls people to come now. Consider also this. One says to him, first, let me deal with the fact my father's going to die and I'll be separated from him. Jesus was going to be separated from his father in a far, far worse way than just death. For he would lose the fellowship that he had with the Father since the beginning of time. Since before there was time. He would lose that fellowship when he took on the sin of the world and would be separated from his Father far worse than death can separate us from ours. He didn't flinch from it. And yet we say, oh, when my parents are dead, then I'll come and serve. Another says, Lord, first I must farewell my house. Jesus left his home in heaven and the glories of heaven and the attendance of an innumerable host of angels. Why? To come to earth for us. And I don't think there was a goodbye party in heaven when he left. I don't think he said to the angels, Hang on a minute, um, let's have one more round before I go. No. He left the glory of heaven for us and did not flinch and did not turn back. Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plough, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, I, I love it sometimes when they put in things in the scripture that I know about. I go, yeah, I know exactly what we're getting at here. And actually, this is one of them. Because I've done this. I've been ploughing. Not with your little baby sort of, I mean a serious tractor. I mean a tractor that was big, the, you know, ones with the big wheels and the big, you know, and the lots of grunt and power in there. When you plough, you never, ever look behind you. What you do is you sit there, you get it all hooked up and all right, and you line up the air filter and the exhaust and a fence post or a tree way off in the distance. You keep those three things lined up, and you rev it up and you drop the lever and in it goes and off you go. I love ploughing. I really did. I, I really enjoyed it. I had a ball doing that. And away you'd go all, all through these huge paddocks. Now you always kept those three things in line. The air cleaner, the exhaust and the tree. Any idiot can keep two of them in line. That's easy. The trick is keeping three of them in line. You do that, when you get to the end, you've got this nice straight furrow you've ploughed. If you look behind and try and see where you're going, you're there with the, the wheel and you, 
and, and it gets a bit offline and, and you correct and you overcorrect and you, and you end up with this furrow that's like that. It's not the way you do it. What's he getting at here? Lessons on ploughing? No. Lessons on life. You look at what is coming, not at what is behind you. We're told that Jesus always looked at the future. Have, have, a, have a look over here in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Not as though I had already obtained, neither already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may have apprehend for that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward unto the things which are before, I press forward to the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, you want to you get this straight? You want to get clear in your mind? You want to apprehend? You want to see what you're doing? Forget the things which are behind and look at the things which are ahead and press towards them. Jesus said, when you put your hand to the plough, don't look back. In another place, he says, remember Lot's wife. For when Lot was being dragged from the city of Sodom with his daughters and his wife by those angels, his wife turned and looked and stared and longed for the things which she was leaving behind. It became a pillar of salt. Looking back, Jesus looked to the future. For already, if you look previously in this chapter, in verse 51, it was said that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knew what awaited him there. He had set his face to go to what was coming towards him for you and for me. He was going to his death and knew it. But he looked to the future. There's a cost to being a disciple. Now, does God say, oh, look, I want you to be, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your house. I want you to leave your parents. I want... No, he doesn't say that. What he does say is, I want you to be willing to do that. I want you to be willing to leave everything. This is... This is hard. This is, this is so hard. To be willing to leave everything. Are we willing to leave? We, don't, we shouldn't be measuring perhaps our, our service to Christ is not what are we willing to do, but what are we willing to leave? 
What are we willing to turn our back on and say, it doesn't matter? What are we willing to forego and forget and walk away from? That's perhaps the question. Now you think, well, would it have been so bad? Would it have been so bad for Jesus to let these people go and perhaps deal with their parents and perhaps have a little farewell party? And would it have been such a bad thing? Because I mentioned something. What happens in the verse, verse 1 of the next chapter? In the next chapter, verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them before his face to every city and place where he would come. Yeah. Do you realise what would have happened had these people gone to do what they want? Now we don't know whether they went or whether they didn't. But if these people returned, one to look after the family until dad's dead and then I'll, I'll serve God. And if another had said, no, no, I'll go back and we'll have a farewell party and then I'll come and serve God. They would miss out on the task which had been set before the disciples to go two by two into every place where Jesus was about to come. Oh. This was both a general lesson and a specific lesson. There's a general principle here that service to Christ must come first, but there's a specific lesson here. These people would have missed out on the last Big evangelistic thrust before the crucifixion. We would have missed out on it. Wouldn't have been there. Would have been classified as missing in action. Not there when you need it. When we say in our heart, oh, when I'm ready, when I'm finished this, when party time's over, when my kids are grown, when I have kids, after I'm married, when I get settled down, when I get a bit more mature, let me tell you that never happens, then I'll serve Christ. What things will we have missed out on? What missions will we have forfeited? What task will remain undone because we said, no, me first. And the call goes out in the very next chapter for 70 pairs to go out to serve the King of Kings and to reach souls in Palestine before it's too late. And these people aren't there. Not there. Gone. Their space is empty because they did not count the cost to, of discipleship. They said, no, me first. Me first. Last century, 
Two men stood before their countries and both made a call to the people of their countries. One said, follow me and I will give you a thousand years of glory. The other said, I have nothing to offer you but blood and toils and tears and sweat. Today, one is revered as one of the great leaders of the 20th century and the other has been dumped into the dustbin of history with the world's other dictators. There is a call which is made and it's so strange that, that it, it, it beggars belief, but yet it is true. There is a call that comes to people which is come with me and suffer. It is a call which has a unique appeal to it. Come with me and suffer. And the Saviour makes the same call to his people now. Come with me and suffer for a while. Come with me and have no place to live. Come with me and have no friends. Come with me and leave your family, your home, your hopes, your future. Come and suffer with the Saviour for a while. And it is a call which over the last 2,000 years has drawn the best and the brightest of Christendom to serve him. It is a strange thing that when we see these cases where the Lord seemingly rejects those and says, count the cost, so many look carefully at the cost and then say, yep, yeah, I'm in, count me and go on to serve him. Brethren, there is a cost to being a disciple. We do not understand in our easygoing world the cost of being a disciple. We've had it perhaps in the Christian church in Australia so soft, so easy for so long that we don't see any real cost to discipleship. We think we can just cruise along. But let me tell you, if you say to Christ, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest, he will put his finger on something. Something. He will put his finger on something in your life and say, are you willing to give up this? Willing to give up this? And for each of us, I believe it's a different thing. For Abraham, it was his son. For another person in scripture, a rich young ruler, it was his possessions. For some others, it's an occupation. Some, it's wealth. For some, it's good name. For some, it's family, friends, home, country. There will be something, I guarantee it, that God will put his finger on in your life and you will go, oh, 
that. That's what you want me to give up. No, that's what I want you to be willing to give up. That's what I want you to be willing to say. Yes, Lord, I'll serve you first before I serve this. What, it is, what is it in your life? Now, I'm not going to ask you to tell me because I'm dead, dead sure I'm not going to tell you what it is in mine. But there's something there, isn't there? There's something in your life. There's a point, a principle, a thing, a person, something in your life that God has said, what about this? You're willing to, to, to walk away from this? And until we are willing to count the cost and say, Lord, I'll do it, we can never really be true disciples. Of all the lessons in Luke chapter 9, in all the lessons that Jesus had to teach his disciples, this is probably the hardest. The lesson of priorities. Where do we put our priorities? Where is your priority today? Is it with money, fame, looks? I haven't got any of those, so I'm safe there so far. Where is it? What is it that you have said thus far and no further? Lord, no, not that. Not that. Lord, can't I just keep this? And he has said, no. You've got to be willing to leave it all. Or have we become part of the me first generation? Have we fallen into the way of the world and said, me first, I want my way first, Lord. Then when I'm done with the party and the enjoyment and then when, when I'm settled down and then when I'm ready, I'll serve you. Or have we looked back at the things in our past and said, I want to go back to that. I enjoyed that. Felt great when I was doing that. Become unfit for the kingdom of God. The test of discipleship. Because in the next chapter, there's work to do. In the next year, brethren, there's work to do. We're going to be setting out in a few weeks next year. I've already talked to Pastor about a few things, especially things like the, the carols night. And that, you know, when we went to the, to the old people's home? Yeah. And you know what we're all, what people are already saying? More. Bigger. There's work to do. There's a world to reach and souls to, to be given the sound of, to be brought under the sound of the gospel. There's work out there to be done. And the question is, who will be missing in action because they've said, no, me first. We're going to be starting up a, a, a children's ministry here. How long will the leaders last? 
Oh, there'll be plenty the first week. What about the second, the third, the fifth, the tenth? When the grind starts and the work starts, who will be there with their hand to the plough? And who will have said, nah, I like it better the old way? The test of discipleship. Where do you put your priorities? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have a place to land their feet, but the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. We wonder about our fathers and our mothers, but the Son of Man left his heavenly Father to come and rescue us. We wonder about our home, but he left his home in heaven for us. There is nothing you can think of that he will ask you to do that he has not already done much, much more for you. You willing to serve? Or do you want to just stand on the sidelines? You want to be in the parade? Or do you just want to wave as those who work go by? The test for the disciple. Where are your priorities. Thank you.